we left off talking very, very, um, very uh, in great detail about the resurrection and how important that is. Not that I'm not loud enough. You get that okay, Jake? Is it still kind of loud? Can, can you turn that down some? Okay, how's that? Is that any better? All right. There you go. Well, you can save the batteries on them, right? Still a little loud. Is that any better? Okay. So as we pick up in Acts chapter 23, um, we're going to read the first going into this so we can get ready for what, what was happening. There is a disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the resurrection. Paul is preaching. He's literally speaking in front of them. It's still very riotous. It's still extremely volatile. And all of a sudden, Paul defends the gospel of Jesus Christ, talks about the resurrection. Pharisees are scratching their heads. And they're saying, we're accusing this man. We want to scourge him. We want to beat him. In fact, it was their purification. They call it their purification, a way of cleansing him. And all of a sudden, he starts defending the resurrection. And they say, back in verse 9, maybe there's no evil in this man. So then the Sadducees take over. They go up against the Pharisees. Paul is standing there. The Roman guard is there. And all of a sudden, this dissension breaks out. Then two incredible things happen. So let's look at it this morning. In Acts chapter 23, verse 9, we're going to pick up. That's Acts 23, verse 9. And there arose a great cry. And the scribes that were the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying... We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing, lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. Now this ends a portion of the scripture in the first 11 verses that is called Paul's address to the council. Then the next part we're going into, we're going to read in a minute, is the conspiracy to kill Paul. This is another conspiracy. Still too loud? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. Amen. Right. Right. That's awesome. And you're noticing something very important. That is a verse that knits together some very, very important questions that people literally have today about what happens to us. Forgiveness, Christianity. And that's amazing you picked that verse out because that is a glue verse. That's a very important verse that we're going to look at here in a minute. So what happens here is this is the end in verse 11 of the address to the council. And then here comes another conspiracy. But we're going to look specifically at that verse because it's Christ talking and he encourages Paul. And that's very important for us to learn what that really means and how important that is. 
In verse 12 in, in, in Acts 23, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with this counsel signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we, or ever he, come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow in the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now are they ready looking for a promise from me. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this matter. Claudius Latius, under the most excellent governor Felix, governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And what I have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for, that, for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him, farewell. Then the soldiers as it was commanded, then took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what providence he was, and when he understood that he was of Cilicia. I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Herod's Judgment Hall. And if you're paying attention to this and you're reading it, I hope you're reading it at home and you're learning more about this. This is unraveling and it's an incredible, as we move forward, as I said before, it gets more dramatic. It gets extremely to the point of violence with Paul many times. And there's all kinds of interesting interesting like uh, uh, openings that Paul gives. And he, along the way, in the middle of all this turmoil, is giving the gospel, and he's preaching. What's incredible about this, does anybody remember, I'm sure a lot of you remember, 
And I used to love this when I was a kid. This is my favorite Batman. Did you ever watch the old Batman show with Adam West? Remember that? And I remember as a kid watching, I was like five, six years old, the cliffhangers. Remember some of the uh, villains on there? There was uh, King Tut, and I remember one time there's Robin, and there's his feet hanging out of this giant clan, and it's at the end of the show, and I'm sitting there, I was scared to death as a kid, because I loved Robin. And it says, what's going to happen to Robin? You know, you got to wait till next week, same bat time, same bat channel, and you're sitting there on a cliff, or else do you have the one with uh, Mr. Freeze? And there's Batman and Robin in this giant milkshake, and they're about to get drowned in this big milkshake. And you didn't have any type of, like, internet. You couldn't watch it, you know, like, it was on Netflix or Prime Video. You had to wait till the next week. And you're left with this cliffhanger, and you're wondering, how in the world is Batman and Robin ever going to get out of this one? You know, and you've seen that in some of the superhero, like, movies and all the TV shows where your favorite character is up against the wall and the conflict is so great, it actually, it's totally fake and you're watching it on television and you're sitting there nervous, you know? And I'm thinking about the impossible situations. I remember as a kid, I'm looking and reading this about Paul. What is the potential of him ever making it through this? It's, 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 an, it's seemingly an impossible situation and when you think you're at your, like, your last ebb with Paul, and Paul's never going to make it, all of a sudden Christ appears out of nowhere and speaks to him again. And there's the light of the world. And he tells Paul something incredible here. Right now, we left off with the resurrection. It was Paul's defense. He was pursued to be killed. And we see that doctrinally and theologically, the Pharisees and Sadducees were diametrically opposed to a thought of a resurrection. It's like Christianity today. We were talking about this. As I came in this morning, Charlie and I were talking to Marianne and Fred. Did you see who died last night? Tim Keller. Y'all don't remember Tim Keller. A lot of people don't remember him. You don't remember? Do you remember him, Lisa? Yeah, Tim Keller. Now, I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm just going to, this is going to be more of a perhaps moment. But I will say this. He came out. Hard and heavy in the early 2000s when the millennium hit. And he started all these writings. And he had all these, um, these debates and books about tearing apart the inerrancy of Scripture. And one of the things that he compromised hard on was the resurrection of Christ. That was a big one. It hit a lot of evangelical churches. And today they are marred and they've been pulled together for guys like him. He had to face God yesterday. He died. I don't know. I have no idea. I've never heard of him coming back out and saying, I'm sorry for what I did. But what he did, he pulled a lot of little churches and a lot of pastors away, and he had this way of getting in their heads and turning them against the inerrancy of Scripture. He compromised the miracles. He compromised the, the time frames in Scripture. He compromised the, uh, the, the absolute... Perf, perf, you're talking about an immaculate... The word immaculate... There's nothing more immaculate, pure, and perfect than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they compromise that. That is not good. In, in essence. Pulling people away from the truth. And that filtered into actu actually part of organizations and some churches that we had been affiliated with many years ago. And you cannot compromise the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My point is, 
You, you, as a Christian, you sit here and you read this. What's leading up to what's happening to Paul is this big event, and I don't want to miss this. You sit there and you talk about how we're sitting here talking about how the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but they believed in a resurrection without Jesus Christ. And so they come on board. Now, Matthew Henry has a very good, detailed writing about basically the um, components of what was going on here. And he says, when we hear somebody say something of a truth that does coincide with what Scripture says, we, we are to be encouraging about that. I'm, I'm not so jovial about it. I personally, if somebody says I believe in the resurrection and they don't believe in Christ, I'm, I, I say they're a liar. That's me. You can't have one without the other. They did not believe in a messianic presence of Jesus Christ. But it was enough for them to believe in a resurrection to save Paul's life. Christ was able to use that. Christ is able to do anything. <laughs> he has unlimited power. And he uses whatever means that he so ordains and he, and he through his providence, in order to bring the truth and to bring protection. And it was this resurrection that the Pharisees hopped on Paul's bandwagon and said, there's no evil in this man, and said, basically, let him go, in a sense. Lisa. Right. Oh, what is that? Don't let that bite you. Right. 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 Sure. Right. Right. Well, the sect, the different sects of Jews that came out of the intertestamental period, had taken this and had just ripped it to shreds. You had the Pharisees. Now, what Lisa says brings us back to an important part: Why could they believe in a resurrection without Christ? Well, what they're saying is the sacrifices of bulls and goats had not been abrogated, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. They're saying the only remission of sins is the blood of the animals, not the blood of Christ. So therefore, the resurrection lies in Moses, Abraham, Jehovah, the first person of the Godhead, and the sacrifice of animals. Now, today, Samaritans today still adhere to the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, they still sacrifice animals in Samaria. That's still their atonement. 
and they leave Christ completely out. But in the final analysis, without the shedding of Christ's blood, who is the unblemished lamb, where the, the sacrifices of these bulls and goats were leading up to the unblemished lamb, and the one that could actually, his blood could defeat and completely wipe away our sins, which is what we're going to go into looking at forgiveness here in a minute. Lisa's exactly right. There is no resurrection without the resurrection of Christ. And that's what this man that died last night, he tried to change that. And it worked. That's the part. When you're sitting there reading this and you're saying how the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, Paul believed in a true resurrection, we automatically sit there and we say, of course there's a resurrection. Of course we believe in a real resurrection. We're Christians. And we don't just believe it because we're some sect of Christianity. We believe it because it is life, it is truth, and there is absolutely no debating it. Oh, there is debating it. it. There is debating it and bringing people away from the truth, and they've done that. And the problem is, there is a physical way of debating with people's mouths and coming up with opinionated lies to tear it apart, but it doesn't change the fact, that, as Lisa's point, that it's perfect truth. And that's what this man did. You compromise that, you have so blasphemed the truth of the gospel and I do believe, and you all can correct me if I'm wrong, but when Christ says, many will come to me and said, Lord, Lord, I've done this in thy name. I mean, a man like this can sit back and say, Lord, we sang the songs on Sunday. We preached the Bible. We gave to these ministries and these charities. He says, well, what did you do with my resurrection? Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And I will tell them, I never knew you. Be gone from me. You, you workers of lawlessness. You take scripture and you take it, you break it apart and you lie about it. That's a serious heavenly offense. And Christ says so himself. That's why Paul was, he was willing to die for this. He was willing to die for the truth. And so we see how the word resurrection is in existence and it's used 41 times in 40 verses in the King James Bible. In the Bible. We see in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the resurrection means the rising of Christ from the dead. The rising again to life of all the human dead before the final judgment, the state of one risen from the dead. I love the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary because it always, always pronounces Christian definitions first. It's always centered around Christ. And that is a wonderful, that was a very good definition. And we see the events of the, re of the resurrection. Paul leads up to those. Remember when John and Peter had approached the tomb. Remember that. And the apostles had, had, a, had alerted Mary. And, and, and the women had told and talked about it. And there were, Christ was seen by over 500 people. Remember all the events that it, that it led to that. Luke chapter 24 verse 2. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when ye were in Galilee, when ye were yet in Galilee, in verse 7, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered these words. And returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. 
Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at which was come to pass. And right here, this is a parallel scripture with many other scripture verses that talk like in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, infallible proofs that the resurrection is exactly what Christ said it is. There was an absolute, there's no debating it. And so men like this man we were talking about who passed away last night, there are many of them out there. And they were try- they're trying to change the-, the truth into an absolute lie. You know, it was the disciples for a while there that really struggled and they, were- they went away from Christ and he-, he forgave them, he prepared them, and he gave them the apostolic commission. Here Jesus appears and this incredible story unfolds um, we, we see that the, with the resurrection, it unfolded with Mary, the apostles, the disciples that became apostles, and there's plenty of proof. So basically, what we see here is that the Pharisees, they arose and they defended Paul. I fully believe that they were those with the sect of the Pharisees that actually knew Paul in the days when he was a Pharisee. There were many in Jerusalem that had high regard and high respect for Saul of Tarsus. They thought he was a very intelligent man. He was. He was uh, very well trained under Gamaliel, and he was extremely driven. He would drive. He would drive forward. Now it's important to remember what had happened prior to him being Paul the apostle, because when Christ speaks to him in verse eleven, it teaches us something incredible about Christ. It's a very important lesson, and if you don't catch this, you're not going to see it actually in words. But you have to. Learn this and you have to see what's going on here. And so basically, here's what it is. Paul the Apostle, before he became, while he was Saul of Tarsus, some of the things that that are recorded that he had done, he persecuted the Christian church, as we've said. He, he He went and he held the cloaks of those that killed Stephen, who was a humble deacon, a Christian evangelist who's a deacon, and he did all these horrible things. So if you're Paul and you're, you're, you're heading into jail and you're thinking of all these things, perhaps one of the things he was thinking is, I am being persecuted and I'm being treated this way because of how horrible I was. So here's the question. Was he forgiven? Aren't there days as Christians? This is very contemporary. This is extremely modern day and present for, for eternity future. Do you ever feel as a Christian you haven't been forgiven? You feel like you don't deserve anything. You feel like you're, you're just so accused and so beaten down that how could Christ forgive someone as low as me or you? I've been there. King David was there. Solomon was there. Paul was there. Oh, wretched man that I am. Look, at, look what happens here. Verse 10, Paul could have been pulled to pieces. And even the chief captain was fearing lest Paul should have been taken apart. And there is no doubt that the chief captain was very concerned about his position. If a riot could not be calmed down and the chief alleged captain is accused and Paul is killed, how is that going to make Claudius Lucius look? He's the chief captain. And if Paul, if he can't even contain one prisoner and this one prisoner gets harmed or he gets killed, what happens? So basically in the middle of this riotous event, Claudius Lysias, he tells the centurions, get this man and get him into the castle. Now I think that's, I personally think that's interesting. 
Because basically what that means is if we get Paul off the streets and get him into the castle, the Roman, this is the Roman Empire. They're going into this, uh, it's called Antonio's Castle. Then they're th- he's saying, what they're saying is basically nobody can touch Paul once he's in the castle. But they're forgetting that there was two events that had already happened here in the book of Acts where not even their big metal chain doors could keep Christ himself from entering into that castle and saving his men. Remember Peter and how the doors were, 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 flown, were broken open by the angels and he came out. Remember Paul and Silas with the Philippian jail. There was an earthquake and the chains fell off. So they're still thinking that they've got all of the protection, all of the safety in that castle. And that's where they bring Paul. While he's there, as we're entering into this next phase of this narrative, remember he has not been incarcerated yet. He's been arrested. So while he's arrested, he can have and he can have he can he can seek and he can have visitors. So he has visitors. But in the meantime, something incredible happens. Verse 11, this is a key verse. It's extremely important. And Luke records it. It's a one-on-one conversation from the right hand of the Father where, where Christ ascended. Christ is in heaven and he literally is speaking audibly to Paul. And he stood by Paul and he tells him to be of good cheer. Now... How can one be of good cheer in such of a persecution? How could you be in good cheer? Well, I'm telling you here, from everything I've read, going into the prison, prison epistles, what I've learned, I know this, Paul was. How can you be in good cheer when you're facing such duress? At this time, you'd think Paul was saying, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. This is really painful physically, mentally, I'm alone. And all of this. Remember, you go back to John 16, 33. What does Christ say? These words have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, a couple things here in this verse. Let's read that verse again. Verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Part of this key verse, we see the contributing factors we would view as a very horrific situation. Paul is in a horrific situation, and perhaps he was very concerned about, at this point, what was going to happen. Oh, is, he, is he actually going to be killed? Is there, are they going to execute him? Are they going to try him? Christ says, be of good cheer. It's an encouragement that Christ tells Paul, you will get through this horrific situation, but don't worry because there's more to come. You will continue to give my name and there, for many reasons, there's a wonderful encouragement and a blessing of peace to Paul. First of all, Paul desired to go to Rome. He wanted to go there. And at this point, before Christ talks to him, he thinks it's over with. He thinks it's done. And Paul speaks wonderfully always about Christ, and Christ speaks wonderfully to him here. But what I love about this is it shows the way that Christ speaks to Paul you're not going to read this word by word, but you can, you can derive from this that since Christ is using Paul in such a wonderful way, he has forgiven Paul for all the things, the horrible things that he's done. He's forgiven him. Forgiveness is so important in our Christian lives. Where do you see forgiveness? 
We don't see that out in, in mainstream, out in media. We don't see forgiveness. We don't see reconciliation. It's always how we can one-up the other guy. And it's never getting even. You always want to one-up them. So getting even doesn't really are. It's always one-upping. At least, at least one-upping, you know. You know, all the big 80s movies. All, all the movies were all about vengeance. And a guy, you know, is, you know, remember Paul Kersey, his wife gets killed. So he goes out with a gun and he starts blowing away everybody in New York. That's what it's like. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about that. But when, in, in the world of Christ, in the universe of Christ, in the heavens of Christ, forgiveness is a big, big part of Christianity. And what could have happened any worse than what Paul did to the Christian church? He's got to be thinking this right now. And the fact that Christ tells him, not only are you going to get out of this, but you are going to go speak of me in Rome, he gives him a prophecy. You will not see death. Remember that? Now, there's a very prominent story that I love in Scripture about a man, a little appearance in Scripture about a man who would not see death. Does anybody remember that? Yes. Simeon. Remember? I love those verses. Remember, and remember Simeon is told, he says that you, Luke 2.25, can somebody look up Luke 2.25 and 26 and read them? I, I just, when you read into this, you see that Paul is in the Roman castle. They just took him off of the streets to keep him from being pulled into pieces. He was that close to death, and now you think he's going to go into the castle and he's going to face an execution trial and he's going to be killed. Christ tells him, You're still going to go to Rome. So basically, we know he's not going to die. And here, the same kind of prophecy was given to a man named Simeon. Whoever has that, read that, please. Twenty six, please. Right. Well, we can imagine Simeon was an older man and he was told very specifically, until you see the Messiah, and it actually as the story unfolds and you read what really happens, you can also interpret this as saying, Until you literally hold him in your arms, you will not see death. Nothing in fact. If you think about it, Christ had told the disciples that nothing would happen to them until he was crucified and until he resurrected. And then after that is when the disciples became apostles and they faced a lot of persecution. So in essence, Simeon could have basically had done anything he wanted until he saw the Christ child. When Christ says you're not going to be killed, he could have literally went out into the market in Jerusalem and he could have stood there in front of the priests, the high priests with the phylacteries on their gardens and their fake prayers, he could have stood there and he could have given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I believe he did. I believe that's exactly what he did. And he went out and told people that the coming of the Messiah was here and I believe they thought he was a nut. That's what I think. I think they, they thought he, all the tourists would come in and he would say, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Well, what does it look like today? There's this precious African-American man I see down in the city all the time. I've talked to him. And he holds these signs up, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They don't think he's a nut. They drive by, they throw things at him, and they think he's a nut because he talks about Christ. And that's what happens today. And I think that Simeon was the same way. But he was told he would not see death. And when he held the Christ child, what was his response? 
Let thou thy servant depart in peace, for I have seen thy salvation. He didn't say, I've seen Jesus. He said, I've seen salvation one-on-one. And this is what Paul was being told. Christ says, be of good cheer. You're going to keep going. You're going to move forward. This is the first impossible situation. We're now seeing the first seemingly impossible situation that has been once again remedied by our Savior. He keeps Paul from being torn to shreds by the riotous crowd after the dissension between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So it's over with, right? And he gets taken with these beautiful chariots into Rome and he gets to preach very peacefully. Oh no, it gets worse. Verse 12, what we just read. Here's the next part of what seemingly was absolutely a difficult situation. Before I go forward, I did write these notes down. I didn't want to do it for nothing. Forgiveness is important. Think of the forgiveness of Israel. Christ forgives Paul. Remember how complaining Israel received the response from Jehovah that is filled with righteous anger. And he, he would destroy the people of Israel for complaining about all of the wonderful blessings that he'd given them, bringing them out of this horrible enslavement. Moses cries out to God and begs his forgiveness, and God grants his forgiveness, and he grants his mercy in a wonderful way. And look at the words of Moses here. Can someone look up Numbers chapter 14, verses 18 to 20 and read them? Before we go to the next part, which is going to get us into next week. Numbers 14, 18 through 20. That's fine, 20 is fine. I have pardoned according to thy word. Moses was a created being by God. He was nothing but dust. And the Lord says, I remember that thou art dust, so I have mercy upon you. And it says, when, and if, you, if you go back and you read the beginning of Numbers 14, the Lord lays out a whole plan to destroy these complaining, murmuring Israelites. Moses steps up and he begs the Lord, to, to consider what it would look like to the Egyptians if these people were destroyed when he delivered them out of Egypt. And the Lord says, I've pardoned you. I, he, that's what he does. He forgives us. But there's work to be done to be forgiven. You can't just live in your sins and just go about and think that there's some automatic default forgiveness plan. The Lord says, confess your sins. I'm just to forgive you. And that's what we do. We pray. We, in the name of Jesus Christ, we confess our sins and we try everything we can to get away from them. And so here the Lord pardons Israel. And then we see also, remember King David, and he stands on the rooftop. He saw Bathsheba and he took her. He killed Uriah and he tried to lie his way out of it. And look what happened in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Here he repents. He shows remorse. And Nathan said unto, the, unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. And right there the Lord forgives him. And we have a wonderful forgiving God. Paul had spoken to Christ. I mean, Christ had spoken to Paul, and Paul had given the gospel of Christ. Well, we saw this back in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall settle knee to hurt thee. 
for I have much people in this city. And now going on to this next event, what happens is there's a, there's a real coup that's arising up against Paul. And now there are 40 conspirating Jews that have now vowed that they're going to not eat and they're not going to do anything. They're going to fast until they kill him. So this is the second impossible situation. But we have to remember when we're reading about this incredible one-on-one experience with Paul and Christ, our, our Savior himself, that Christ does not take all of his energy and all of his being and his limited power and center it on a certain amount of people and forget about everybody else. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, and he can do it all at once. And when he says this about Paul, no matter what state we are, no matter what trial we're in here, we all are carrying them in our brains right now, many of which we don't even probably want to tell anybody else. The Lord has this. You can guarantee it. No matter what you think, no matter what you question, the Lord has this. He knows. He knows what you're going to have. He knows what you faced. It says in Proverbs, he has your tears in a bottle. And in, your, in the future, he knows the things that are going to be coming up that you don't even know about or I don't even know about yet. And he has that also. And he has forgiveness. He has the remedy. And he knows how to make us cheerful in our hearts without having to spend the rest of our lives in therapy. I mean, he knows how to do that. And so I say this morning, why not to, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Why not? Christ had met with Paul. And we see here, Paul is pulled, when he's pulled into the castle, something arose, and it's, it's very incredible what happens here. In verse 13, and there was, there, it says there were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. All of a sudden, these Jews get together, and, it's, and, it, and we can stand a reason that it shows kind of like a going away from the Pharisees. The Pharisees looks like they're in the backdrop, so it really is most likely possible that it was the Sadducees and other conspirating Jews that were part of this coup. Forty of them have said that they're not going to eat, they're not going to do anything until they kill Paul, and they're going to find him, and they're going to kill him any way they want. So at this point... We have seen in Scripture that when the Jews plan to kill somebody, they usually get through it, don't they? they? They plan to kill Christ. Well, the Lord allowed that. They plan to kill Stephen. Stephen was dead. They said they're going to go after Paul, and they're going to kill him. And look at some of the detail here. I think that this is fascinating as we move forward. It says, Paul here has a sister. He has a sister, and, it, and when Paul's sister's son, in verse 16, Heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. How was he able to enter into the castle? How was he able to do that? Well, right now, there was a real, there seemed, there was a real compassion for Paul because he had been spared for being ripped to pieces by these rioters. So under his arrest or his arraignment, he was allowed to have visitors. Evidently, this young man was known and he was able to come in and he was able to talk about what he had overheard. And this young man had overheard, somehow along the way, he had heard these Jews, <coughs> and the Lord strategically placed him to overhear what they had planned to do to him. Had they not heard this, this was being carried out very swiftly. So all of a sudden, this young man is Paul's nephew. Paul has a nephew. How can that be? 
Think about what happened with Paul. You would think that when he was in Cilicia, or Tarsus, basically when he was there in his hometown, and he had basically turned his back on the Pharisaical order, and he had become a Christian, that most likely he was not only excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue, but he was excommunicated by his family. They would have excommunicated him also. So what happens? How does he have a sister living in Jerusalem? Well, I maintain she probably went with him and loved him. It's a good chance she became a Christian along with her son. And here the nephew is defending Paul. Now, why would he defend Paul if he's excommunicated by the Pharisaical order? He would have must have become a Christian. And he must have been, Paul probably went to them and he explained to them what had happened and gave them the gospel and they went with him. That's the only way I can perceive that they wound up in Jerusalem. They were there. So here the the nephew, here he is standing up. And he's basically, he's taking care of his uncle. We see that this is a real, one of the few clear references in scripture to Paul's family. And that being in Jerusalem, basically, is a good chance that they had become, they, they had followed after the Lord. He's under arrest, but he has not been put in jail, and so he could see visitors, and now this visitor becomes a very important one. Paul, he, then Paul called one of the centurions, verse 17, and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner called me unto him, and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand, and went with him aside privately, and asked him, What is it that thou hast to tell me? That is of the Lord. Because he could have easily turned that young man away. And that would have been it. That would have been it for Paul. This would have been a very volatile situation, because they had vowed they would not even do anything until they killed him. You know, it's very interesting. Sure. Right. Well, to them, that would have been part of their purification, that they would make a vow and they would fast until they commit this. Being conspirators, there might have been a whole lot of different sects of Jews. It doesn't say if they were exactly Pharisees or Sadducees, but we can imagine that they were not Pharisees because the Pharisees had just declared Paul not to be an evil man, and they kind of backed off. So basically, if they make this vow and they, and they were to violate the vow, in the synagogue, it could have been a problem. But then again, this could have been some kind of a, like a clandestine or some kind of a, a, a maneuver that they had that basically nobody knew about that if they didn't carry out, they would scatter and that they would be protected. And the reason that they could get away with that is basically, I can answer that the best way, is they got away with stoning Stephen without any approval of the Roman guard. There were politics involved. Dave. Right. His dad, his father was a Roman. Correct. And that's a good point. Because Paul, at this point, was still alive because his father was a Roman and he had been released at one point. That's, that's a good possibility. 
And if he, if he wasn't a Roman, they also could have had him killed, too, by now. Right. Absolutely. His father's a Roman and his mother was a Pharisee. She was a Jew. So on both parts, he was part Roman and Pharisee, and they had a real problem with this. And what it did was it magnified basically the conundrum with Jesus. Remember when they bring him in? We could find no fault in him. We could find no fault in him. I find no fault in him at all, Pilate said. And they still, because of the political structure, they still killed him. And so this is what they're, Dave brings up a good point. Why is this still going on? There's still a lot of uh, disagreement and a lot of like politics going on here. So right now, with Claudius Lucius, he's basically saying, I got a real problem on my hands. You know, the, here we see that to foil the conspirators' plot and to avoid a potentially explosive confrontation with the Jews and save Paul's life, here Claudius Lucius realized he had to get the apostle out of Jerusalem. So basically, not only does he pull him out of Jerusalem and out of the castle, he will then take him in front of the governor, Felix, and get him away. And see how this keeps passing the buck? I mean, it's incredible how, the, how politics are the very same as the way they are today here you know, in our country. It's very, it's very much like that. But I find, Lisa... Right. Right. That's right. Right. And this pledge they swear amongst each other. And we don't even see what happens to them after that. But that's a good point that Dave brought up and Lisa, because what happened to them? Well, we know this. They can't do anything without Roman approval. This is where Claudius Lucius stands up, and he's basically saying, I'm going to take this matter into my own hands. I am on the firing line here, and I'm going to the governor, Felix. They're going to have to handle this. And this goes all the way up the chain to Caesar. This is where it gets very, very political. Dave. At the time, he is basically there at the castle with Paul, he leaves, from what I understand, he leaves and he's, no, 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 no. Claudius Licius was with Paul. Felix here is in another court in Rome. I don't, I don't have the, uh, yet I don't have the proximity. I think it's, he's from Cilicia, but I believe they take him to Caesarea. And said, but, but what was supposed to happen is Paul's being transported from the castle to this next location, and that's where they want to grab him. They want to come in, they want to pull him away, they want to, like, it could be at night. And basically come and get him and kill him, and hopefully nobody knows what knows who it was. So that's this is this is what they're planning. Verse eighteen. So it says, so he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee. Here's another fascinating part, fascinating part. We'll stop here because it's too, it's too late, and we'll pick this up. Look how many soldiers were sent for one man. They sent a legion. They sent horsemen. 
They sent javelin throwers. These men were absolutely the best horsemen that Rome had. A legion was a part of army foot soldiers that could throw the javelin, they could do anything, and it was three to 6,000 was a full Roman legion, and they took a percentage of that. That's how many people they got to go after this coup and to spare, spare Paul. Tell me that wasn't of the Lord. Paul had the best military training and the best foot soldiers and horsemen to defend him, and they didn't even know that. They, didn't, they had the Romans had no idea the Lord was using them to defend Paul so that Paul could go to Rome. You see how this comes together? I mean, this is one thing after another. And, there's, and he sends this little young nephew to break open the whole conundrum and to go to them and tell them, they're coming to kill my uncle. What are you going to do about it? And Claudius Celestis says, they're not going to touch him. They're not going to do it. And when it's all said and done, Paul will be spared. And he will go to Rome just like he wanted to. And the Lord says, he'll do it. And that's, we'll pick up next week what happens. And that's all. Uh, let's finish with prayer. I'd like to ask uh, Pastor Britton, could you close us this morning? Thank you. It's great to see you.